Section 24 of The Progressive Woman, Volume 7, Number 75, October 1913. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Little Sister of the Poor by Josephine Conger Kaneko. This is the third installment. Chapter 6. Two weeks after the informal meeting of Verona, Ava, and Anton on the street corner, Rachel Hammerstein gave a party in her parlor over old Ike Hammerstein's second-hand store. From the time Verona received her invitation, she was in a ferment until she managed to secure one for Anton also. Rachel did not know Anton, and was in doubt as to the propriety of inviting him. Verona, to whom all things must be made possible, insofar as they related to her newly found friend, solved the problem for Rachel by taking her to call upon Mrs. Novotny. It was evening, and Anton was at home. His surprise was great when he opened the door and saw the laughing, blushing faces of the two girls. With consummate tact, however, and a grace worthy of a more pretentious occasion, he led them into the dining-room, which was also the sitting-room, and introduced them to his mother, Mrs. Novotny, embarrassed but gracious, received the young women who had so unceremoniously burst in upon them. Under the influence of the good-natured chatter, her eyes grew brighter, her cheeks flushed, and Anton was glad, for her sake, of the intrusion upon their solitude. The Novotny home consisted of three rooms, all of which were heated with one small, old-fashioned cook-stove. This warmth would hardly have been perceptible to persons coming from steam-heated apartments, but to Verona and Rachel, who were used to open inadequately heated houses, it was comfortable enough. Besides, the young blood in their bodies was glowing at a high rate, furnishing heat sufficient for the lack in the prevailing temperature of the house. During the course of the evening Anton made tea, which he served himself with small cream-filled cakes from a delicatessen store. He was invited to the party, and at ten o'clock the girls took their leave, they had not intended to extend their visit so long, but they had had such a good time, and as the street had no special etiquette regulating the length of first calls, they stayed as long as inclination led them. Anton accompanied them to their homes. Mrs. Novotny felt a mother's pleasure in the invitation so cordially extended to Anton. She reasoned that a gay evening with the young people would bring a welcome relief from the monotony of his life but he knew that he could not enter into the spirit of such an evening, that the most he could do would be to tolerate it, and to give a semblance of enjoyment that he did not feel. For the young man who had known women and political intrigue in a Polish city, the trivial affairs of Chicago shop-girls could hold no possible interest, unless he was, perchance, a student of sociology, an inquirer into the various phases of human expression, or a propagandist, grasping every opportunity for the dissemination of his life's religion. Anton was neither, at least in this country. The ABC of the majority of America's problems were unknown to him, not that he was incompetent or unsympathetic, but because he had been too busy, too cut off by the nature of his environment and his work to make an acquaintance of a serious sort either with persons or social conditions here. The innocent mother, however, herself totally unacquainted with her son's inner life, could not be expected to know of the experiences that had forever made trivial things valueless to Anton. 
it would seem the proper thing to any one that an elevator boy in a big department store should find pleasure in associating with the clerks who sold ribbon and music across the counters not that the mother thought that these persons were good enough for her son to her mind they were not but for that matter nobody in america so far as her observation had gone was his equal in any respect but this unfortunate circumstance should not bar him forever from an occasional pleasant hour with americans just as her brother used occasionally to receive on terms of friendship his fellow clerks from the clothing department and he seemed to enjoy gossiping with them about the other clerks the floor walker the boss and the various persons and things connected with department store life so for the sake of his health and even of his sanity this normal relaxation from the strenuous life downtown must be accepted by anton anton was weary the day at the store had been particularly hard on account of a great bargain sale on the fourth floor women had pushed and fought for place in his car and his polite nature had been strained to the utmost in the effort to keep some of them from getting killed the strain was worse than usual because one of the elevator boys working overtime the night before had lost control of his car and had had an arm torn off in its wild flight from floor to floor his first impulse when he reached home was to lie down and sleep this he did until his mother called him to dress for the party he had had but an hour's rest and this intrusion irritated him considerably however she had already brushed his clothes and pressed his trousers so that he had only to eat his belated supper and dress himself the one suit he possessed besides his working uniform had been new two years before and was none the better for wear but his mother saw that it was kept well brushed and pressed for him so that he might look respectable when he needed it the street was not particular in regard to the time of the arrival of guests at parties anton went at half-past eight and it seemed to him that persons were coming in from that time until near the hour of going home this he found was due to the fact that many of them were detained at their places of business when he arrived someone was playing the piano and the tune that arose above the din of voices for all but the performer were laughing and talking as loudly as they could was a familiar one that he had heard many times from the hurdy-gurdies on the street the player was a young man with a derby hat perched impertinently on one side of his head a cigar in his mouth and possessing a terrific execution it was as if he were trying to break miss hammerstein's pianoforte just what grudge he could have but here anton's observations were interrupted by a stillness which precipitated itself upon the room when rachel came and took him by the arm as if to make some disposition of him he felt that he was the cause of the precipitate lull when the voices became quiet the piano player abruptly ceased the vigorous manipulation and whirled about on the stool upon seeing anton and that there was about to be some ceremony connected with him he shuffled off his stool turned it over as if by accident picked it up and with elaborate gesture lifted it high in the air and as carefully and slowly lowered it to its place on the rug before the piano then he placed himself as had the others all standing as nearly against the wall as he could get this left anton the centre of a circle of intensely interested spectators then with due solemnity began the introductions mr novotny miss kelly miss o'connell miss polkovich 
Mr. Schultz, Mr. Labrowski, Miss Simansky, Mr. Smith, and so on, all around the room. To each one Anton bowed with appropriate dignity. Some of the girls reached their hands to be shaken. When the ordeal was over, the crowd immediately broke into fresh conversation, loud and clamorous, like a stream rushing out of its banks. This was a relief, and Anton looked about for a quiet corner in which he could watch the party unobserved. But Miss Hammerstein, conscious of a hostess's duty, left no opportunity for quiet corners. There were a dozen pretty girls who wanted to talk with a young man of the fine manners, and Rachel saw to it that they had the opportunity. After the first embarrassment had passed, Rachel's assistance was not needed. The girls were able to take care of themselves, and of Anton, too. Some of them got black looks and whispered threats from admirers who would brook no rivals. Of all this, Anton was happily ignorant. Verona was there in white shirt-waist and pompadour, but Rachel's brother Ike was evidently so infatuated with her that he gave her no time for other young men, though she slipped away from him once or twice and got in a word or two with Anton. Eva Poniatowski bestowed most of her attention upon big sandy-haired Smith, who kept a drayich and newsstand down the street. The evening was not without its strain upon Anton. He looked in vain for some code, some fixed manners of conducting himself, such as one finds in what is known as polite society. Here each individual clung to his own method of procedure, and the result was an astonishing variety of manners and spontaneous activity. Some of the young men kept their hats on, some of them smoked, any or all of them joked the girls by kissing them in season and out. These demonstrations were rewarded with slaps in the face by the offended young ladies. Kissing was permissible, however, in games of forfeit, and these, together with card-playing, were the chief amusements of the evening. The piano was never allowed to remain quiet, and the songs that were sang were of the variety that Verona sold over the counter in the music department of her store. Two or three of these seemed to be favorites, and were sung over and over until Anton got the feeling that he was walking a treadmill, and longed desperately to get off of it. When the words were not sung, and nobody ever knew quite all the words, the air was played as though the player could not get enough of it. There came a brief, unaccountable period when nobody occupied the piano stool. It was the pebble that turned the current in the stream of Anton's life. He had been crowded against the keyboard by half a dozen persistent and admiring young women, and quite unconsciously ran his fingers over the keys, making a few chords. Instantly there was a cry for a piece from him. Glad to occupy himself in any more congenial fashion, he slipped onto the stool and began to play. There were dreamy strains at first that were scarcely heard above the tumult of voices. He was finding himself. It had been years since he had touched a piano, and all the tonal part of his being seemed to have retreated to the hidden recesses of his soul before the onslaught of his everyday life. The feel of the ivory under his fingers, however, began to bring it back. Then it all awoke at once, the music soul so long dammed up by the ice flows of economic necessity broke loose, and there followed a thing with crash and dash, with tremendous chords and long runs in it. But it was not the crash and dash that had tormented the instrument all the evening. It was differentiated from that by the fact that it was produced melody, harmony, poetry, while the other produced only noise. 
Half the talking ceased, then the other half. When absolute quiet remained, the player went off again into the quieter, sweeter airs, pathetic little snatches from his native composers, and measures so infinitely sad that some of the girls were shedding tears into their handkerchiefs over them. Then he sang, and the more emotional ones fell into each other's arms and sobbed aloud. He sang in his native tongue, a dirge from the crushed heart of Poland. His voice was more than a human voice. It was the cry of a soul that never could forget, that had suffered the insult and the ignominy, and had hoped against hope. When he finished, the young people sat for a brief space in reverential silence. Then an irrepressible youth jumped up and shouted something about cutting the weeps. It was a signal for the tumult to begin, and with lightning change the crowd joined in singing. Every day the papers say there's a robbery in the park. So I sit all night in the YMCA, singing just like a lark. There's no place like home, but I'm afraid to come home in the dark. Anton was still under the spell of his own song, and this terrible invasion upon his mood was frightful to him for the moment. He retired to a corner and was planning some means of escape when Ike Hammerstein, who had managed to tear himself away from Verona for an instant, went over and made a proposition to him. Ike knew of a Turkish restaurant that needed a piano player right away. It occurred to him that Anton might like the job. The manager was a friend of Ike's, and he would give him an introduction. You're a dandy player, all right. No trouble about your getting the job if you make an entry early. My name will help you out, even if you couldn't play like you do. Go down today, give the old man a tune, and he'll take you quick enough. His place is at XYZ South Clark, Turkish Cafe. Better go see him. Only have to play evenings. Pretty fair pay. Ta-ta, now. Don't forget to see him. He called back as he made his way to Verona. At any other time, Anton would have considered the proposition with favor, nay, with joy. But now wouldn't that Turkish cafe music mean just the rotten, vile stuff he had been listening to all the evening? Besides, he was ruffled and sore at the crowd he was in, and wanted no more of their kind. He found his hat, and with a curt goodbye to a few of the noisy throng, slipped away. His mother's wish that the evening's diversion might be beneficial to him was unfulfilled. The whole thing had been so disgustingly low, so free from any vestige of intelligence or useful purpose, that no one could be benefited by it. And yet there were thousands of persons who passed life in just such a meaningless atmosphere, who lived like fools and died like slaves. No wonder there was such a thing as bondage and oppression everywhere. When he reached home, he found his mother lying unconscious on the kitchen floor. The fire was low in the stove, and how long she had lain there in this condition he was afraid to think. His dream of higher things was gone. There was but one immediate thing to do, and that was to guard and support his mother as long as she should live. With aching heart he carried her to her bed, and as best he could brought her back to consciousness. True to his promise that he would call in no strangers, he sat with her all night, and all the next day he watched by her bedside. Chapter 7 When Anton went back to his store, he found his place occupied by another man. A wage of six dollars a week is little enough for the support of two people in a large city, but when that little is suddenly taken away, and there is not so much as a penny, and the winter is only at its beginning, and a mother is ill, 
and jobs are hard to find, and one is a stranger to the people and the ways of the people, it is a difficult problem to confront. But such a problem was Anton's. At first he was dazed by it. He had expected to find someone in his place. An elevator couldn't run by itself. But when the man in attendance told him, in a surly voice, to go on with ye, tis me own job and none others, he became alarmed, and when upon appealing to his old boss he was briefly and curtly informed that they had a new man, he was overwhelmed by the brutality of it. Instinctively dreading the cold, he walked up and down the aisles of the great store, vainly trying to get his wits together. What would his mother do? This was his dominant thought, his great dread. His uncle, who had been employed in the clothing department of the same store, had cut away from association with the Poles in the city, and what few acquaintances he had found time to cultivate were among inconsequential Americans. Anton had been too busy himself to hunt up friends among his own people, and he felt that it would do no good to appeal to these American friends for assistance. His sensitive nature had been driven back upon itself more and more, as he had become familiar with the business methods of the people of this country. He found that each man had his hands filled to running over, with the effort to keep his own job, and look after his individual affairs, without burdening himself with the misfortunes of others. And he recoiled from the thought of embarrassing anyone with his particular misfortunes, unless it should be someone whom he knew could give him work. For that was all he wanted, just work. To walk too long through the store was to invite the suspicion of floor-walkers, and after an hour of pacing up and down, and in and out among the crowd of shoppers, he buttoned his coat closely about him and walked out onto the street. He climbed into a car and was well on his way home, when a light suddenly broke in upon his dazed brain. He remembered Ike Hammerstein's suggestion regarding the Egyptian café. His face, pale and distressed at once broke into a luminous smile of delight. Ten dollars a week! And he had been a conceited ass to turn a deaf ear to it. He, a beggar, thinking to pick and choose what sort of music he should play, what kind should delight his ears, as if he had a right to any kind. His native folk songs, the nocturnes of Chopin, Moskowski, Krieg, and even Padruski, Poland's modern pride and wonder, all these were for men and women with hearts and minds, for people whose nerves, made of more than clay, were tuned to fine appreciation. His was the life of the plotter, of the machine, of the slave, Brain and heart and nerves had no place in the economy of his everyday life, and he would see that they were kept in their place henceforth. The most modern, most vulgar, and vicious ragtime he would play, and gladly, if they would but give him ten dollars a week with which to buy the bread and meat for his stomach. Nay, five would buy him now. The body must live above all things, his mother's and his own. The soul must retire in favor of the body. But where was the Egyptian café? and it was possible that they had already hired a player. Anton grew into a cold sweat at the bare thought, but even so he would get Ike to interfere in his behalf. He would have to tell him that he was starving. He would have the other fellow turned off, and the job given to him. He was rapidly developing the spirit of the time. His was the viciousness that has won out in the great industries, that has turned out the little fellow, and the small concern and placed the big fellow at the head of a score of such concerns. It was the viciousness that has in part made possible the amalgamated trusts, 
It was the brute thirst for gold. But with Anton it was thirst born of a desperate want. He needed the gold for what it would buy, not for the sake of adding unto himself more gold. Before his fevered vision glowed the princely sum of ten dollars a week, and over against it was an empty pocket-book and hunger and sickness. He found the Hammerstein junk shop, and got the café address and the recommendation from Ike. He spent another five cents for car fare. That nickel meant a loaf of bread. Suppose he failed to get the job. But he had set his head not to fail. It was one of those places, this Egyptian café, which gives a moral shiver to highly respectable and self-respecting folk, whenever their attention is rudely called to them. They do not wish to commit the crime against themselves of being conscious of these low resorts. That they exist, they know, in a dim, vague way, but they exist for other people, the kind of people who even in thought are never permitted to intrude upon the inner sanctuary of spotless minds. These good people of the pure white consciences dare not think of the low places. They dare not push their investigations regarding them. If they do, they will find that the resorts exist for them too, and that they exist by their consent, for them because they help to keep the lower classes in their place, help to keep them out of the high places by keeping them amused and debauched and degraded. They hold them down under the thumbs of the high and the good, fit them only for menial service and subjection. Without a lower class, what would become of the higher classes? The lower classes are essential to present prosperity, to present greatness. Therefore these classes must be abundantly provided with the means of keeping themselves low. And they are so abundantly provided by the grace of the great who exploit them, and the good who turn their eyes away, lest they witness the exploitation. When Anton opened the door of the Egyptian café, he saw at a glance all that was to be seen that was of importance to him at that moment. He saw a room comparatively empty of people, but at a piano in one end of it a tall, slim, square-jawed young man was playing a popular air. He felt faint. The floor seemed to be giving way beneath his feet. Mother, sickness, winter, misery, he saw the whole sickening panorama pass before him in an instant. So selfish were his thoughts that, though he saw, he was not impressed in the least by the fact that a young tipsy blonde girl with disheveled hair and a toppling sailor hat with a streaming veil hung about the pianist's neck, making love to him in a maudlin, irresponsible manner. He stood for an instant clutching the doorknob as a mist gathered before his eyes. His impulse was to run away before anyone saw him and asked what he wanted, but he found it difficult to let go his hold on the knob. As he stood hesitating, a stout, red-faced man approached and asked in a genial manner if they could serve him in any way. Moved by blind impulse, Anton stepped inside and sat down at the nearest table. It was a small table, with a glass top. Under the glass he could see arranged cigarettes, pipes, tobacco, and cigars. When the stout man asked him what he would have, he answered mechanically, cigarettes. The man raised the lid and handed him a Turkish brand. Fifteen cents, he said, and Anton drew fifteen cents from his pocket and handed it to the man. Painfully he drew from the box one of the coffin nails and put it between his teeth, but he forgot to light it. The stout man walked over to where the young man sat at the piano and began a subdued but excited conversation. The frowsy girl slipped by Anton and went quietly out the door. 
Soon the young man followed her. A tall black-moustached individual rose up out of a back corner of the café and sauntered toward the front. "'Ain't going to take him back?' he queried to the stout man. "'Nah, I told him last night. I wouldn't take him back. And damn it, I'm going to keep my word this time. Tried him too many times already. Fool's half full now. Never can tell when he's going to fall down on me. If Jackson doesn't turn up this afternoon, I'll get out and get someone else. No end of piano players in Chicago. And all fired good ones, too. Joe Quinn's nothing extra, though he thinks he's a whole orchestra, and I can't run the place without him. He'll find out. Fool was all right when I first got him here, but he's trying to go the pace, and is breaking down. The barometer of feeling lately fallen so low experienced a sudden upward rush, and Anton found himself standing, his heart in his mouth, his legs wobbly from suppressed excitement. He looked from one speaker to the other with suppliant eyes, but without the ability to speak. He sat down again, and while the men changed their conversation, he smoked with a terrible inward emotion, but with outward calm, his cigarette. When that was finished, he put the box containing the remainder in his coat pocket, flecked a bit of lint from one of his sleeves, leisurely took up his hat, looked at it, dented the crown into shape, placed it on his head, and walked over to the manager of the café. Without a word, he took Ike's note from his pocket and handed it to the man. After reading it, the manager looked him up and down, as one might an article of merchandise. "'You want to play the piano, do you?' Hammerstein heard me play the other night and said you ought to have me. What do you play? Anything. All right, let's hear some of it. Anton screwed down the piano stool and proceeded on a thing whose chief merit was spirit. The fire in it evidently caught the favor of the manager, for when he had finished that individual clapped his hands and shouted, Good, how much do you want? Anything he could get, Anton was about to say, but checked the impulse. Before he could frame a price in words, the manager said, I'll give you ten dollars. You play from five in the afternoon until twelve, all right? All right, answered Anton. When do I begin? Today, tonight. We're just out of a player. Good thing you happened in. Hammerstein always has his weather eye cocked for the main chance. He gave it to you this time. Good boy, Hammerstein. So the bargain was made, and the terror fled from the young man's soul but the strain to maintain a calm exterior before the manager had made him weak. His blood was rioting through his veins. He wanted to shout. Instead, he went for a long walk in the cold air to set his nerves right. At five o'clock, the Egyptian café was a wilderness of lights and cigarette smoke. Anton was at his post and manipulated the piano with the apparent endeavor to be heard above the din of conversation, thus hoping to earn the full measure of his salary. He was in truth conscious of nothing save his work, the piano and the fact that he had a job he wanted to hold. All the resentment he had felt at the Hammerstein party, because of the indifference of the young people to good music, now lay buried beneath the immediate demand of material wants. Popular airs, ragtime, waltzes followed each other in rapid succession. Some of them were played again and again in answer to applause, but for the intermission of ten minutes between each selection, he would have been prostrated before the evening was over. There is an element in the night atmosphere which brings out the bats and the spiders of evil, which sets traps of degradation for the unwary, and sends the prowler after his victim. No night passes in any great city without its victims, 
without its young men and women who are led into the first steps of the downward path no night passes without its other victims men and women wasted by dissipation who play their poor last act and drop out for these is the quick shroud and forgetting hurry them away lay them deep in the ground their deeds their poor weaknesses smell to heaven even as the rotten bodies the world wants not to think of them exposure might turn the beginner back might cause him to hesitate and finally refuse to follow the path that leads to the abyss and in this way the business interests of the cities would in many instances be demoralized for to what extent the traffickers in human weakness and human misery rule the business interests of our great cities only the businessmen and the politicians know and that knowledge is not favorable to true reform the twenty million dollars a year yielded by prostitution alone in chicago is sufficient to keep publicity at bay when anton left the egyptian cafe at twelve o'clock he might have noticed had his eyes been open to such things that the crowd the real gang was just coming in the quieter saner revelers had for the most part departed only those of them remained who were ready to put foot to the second step downward the egyptian cafe was in reality an open door to a notorious hotel through it young women entered this hostelry and some of them became permanent residents there chapter eight mrs oblinsky was the proudest woman on the west side ike hammerstein had shown so decided a preference for verona since the hammerstein party that there was no mistaking his devotion mrs oblinsky thought and straightway visions of future prosperity began to shape themselves in her mind she sang all day and welcomed ike with glowing smiles when he came in the evening to take verona out dances and theaters two or three times a week were becoming the rule ike never sat down with verona in her own home to do so would have been too prosaic a proceeding for the family would have been too much in evidence in that case and he wasn't courting the family mrs oblinsky never objected to the going out in the evenings on the part of her daughter it seemed to be the rule of the street all the girls verona's age went out regularly with their young men it was rumored in the neighborhood that old hammerstein could dig up fifty thousand dollars any day if need be he also had the name of being the meanest miser in chicago mrs oblinsky who was not mean but close through necessity argued that the tighter the old man held to his money today, the more there would be for his children and their families in the future the possibility of verona one day sharing the joys of the hoarded gold became a pleasant dream to her mother to this end verona was fitted out with more clothes and better ones than she had ever before possessed if the family larder suffered because of this well life was not all meat and drink anyway mrs oblinsky was denying herself necessary raiment and had already paid the penalty in a severe cold which threatened to invade her lungs but even so she felt that the end justified a little indiscretion on her part and she kept on dreaming her dreams as for verona she was enjoying life for the most part social recreation had found but little place in her experience and now pretty healthy thoughtless she only knew that the privations she had known all her days were becoming less severe and she manifested her appreciation by a complete abandonment to her new privileges 
There was no effort on her part to solve the whys and wherefores of things. Unlike her mother, she had never become a philosopher, nor had economic problems bothered her mind as problems. Hard times were going, good times coming. So it seemed to her. If nothing of a serious nature had interrupted her associations with Ike, she might finally have married him, thinking she loved him, unable to separate the good times he was giving her from the personality of the man himself. Innocent, thoughtless maidens have done this thing from time immemorial, in high circles, as well as among the lowly. Anton had been playing the piano at the café less than a month. He was already sick of the job, but his mother continued in frail health, and cold weather had come on in earnest. Poverty under such circumstances would make one crawl on his belly on the ground for a crust of bread and a warm corner in which to sleep. In this fact the young Pole accepted as philosophically as he could. Each night brought its nauseating experiences, but he swallowed his dose and looked beyond at the comforts it would bring for the sufferer at home. One evening, about ten o'clock, he had just finished a rousing encore selection, when turning about on his stool he came face to face with Ike Hammerstein and Verona. They were at a small table a few feet away, and both seemed in high spirits. Verona looked directly at him, and with a happy smile accompanied by a graceful little wave of the hand, greeted him. Ike looked up at this, and taking his hat off, saluted Anton. Anton, however, felt a queer pulling at his throat, and it was not a joyful greeting he returned the pair. It hurt him desperately to see Verona in this place. He had seen other girls come and go, and had felt a general compassion for them. But in this case it was a concrete, individualized feeling of resentment and regret. He hated Ike for bringing her there, and believed he meant no good by it. As soon as he could, he turned to his playing again. But for an hour they remained, and he noticed other young men talking to Verona, who was decidedly the prettiest girl in the room, and there seemed to be a good deal of drinking among them. Ike didn't take Verona home after they left the café. Instead, they went to the Hotel Annex, where he said they were going to meet some friends. Verona, ignorant of the character of the hotel, was in a mood for any gay company or any fun that might come along. She noticed that Ike took her to a small private room, instead of remaining in the big parlors through which they passed, but she thought this only a mark of his wealth and his taste for exclusiveness. It all seemed very fine to her. She was glad she had on her new waist, and felt that Ike was proud of her jaunty appearance. Ike closed the door, which fastened on the inside with a snap lock. He assisted her carefully in taking off her coat and hat. Then they sat down, and he looked at her. He was looking at her very foolishly. She shifted a little under his gaze. Why doesn't he go after his friends, she thought. Presently he became demonstrative. She did not warm to these demonstrations. They repelled her. Then she began to be afraid of something. She grew horribly afraid, but she tried to smile and tell herself that she was not afraid. The smile was a failure. Her lips were dry, and she moistened them with her tongue. She would have spoken, but found it rather hard. She remembered that she had been drinking. Maybe she had had too much, and that was making her feel queer. But the fear in her took on alarming proportions. It became resentment. What was the matter with Ike, anyway? Suddenly her voice came back. Why don't your friends come, she asked. My friend is here, whined Ike. She hated him, and her nerves grew stronger. 
your friends ain't coming. Let's go. It's too late to be out anyway. Ike's eyes were green. They looked like the eyes of a snake she had seen once at the zoo in Lincoln Park. We ain't going home. You are going to be my little wife, and we are going to stay here. It'll be all right. You can tell your mother. Verona moved suddenly. Ike went down on the floor in a bunch, his face striking the corner of a hot radiator with considerable force. When he picked himself up and felt his bruised and burning face, Verona was turning the latch in the door, and before he could divine her purpose, she was out in the corridor and hastened down the stairs. Verona was on the street, but she had no money, and she couldn't get home without car fare. After walking up and down a few times, she began to feel the cold, and she knew it was near midnight. She was not afraid of Ike now. A policeman was marching up and down on his beat nearby, and she believed in his power and his will to make Ike pay for the insult if he came about her again. But even if the policeman hadn't been there, she wasn't afraid of Ike. She felt somehow that he was afraid of her. If she had had the strength of a man, she would have killed him, and he couldn't have mistaken her temper. She didn't know how to get home, but she would find a way. Maybe the policeman would give her a nickel. She started to ask him and nearly ran into Anton, who was coming out of the cafe entrance. The latter was surprised to see Verona, and yet scarcely wholly surprised. He had felt vaguely that something unpleasant would be the outcome of the night's dissipation for Verona. His fears were realized in this encounter. When she saw him, Verona clasped her hands together, exclaiming, Oh, Anton! It was needless to question her. Her wide, glistening eyes and her white face were intelligence enough. They took the car together, and throughout the entire ride only a few commonplaces were spoken. Verona knew that she would never tell Anton, nor anybody else, what had happened, but she also realized that he understood enough to feel concerned for her. The door of a new world was opened to her in this experience. Life would never be the same again. Men could never be the same. She had found the horror in the world that she had heard other shop girls hint at vaguely. Now she understood, and her eyes were large and luminous, her face pale, and her lips made a straighter line than usual by a closer compact of the jaws. Anton looked at her and understood. He also admired her self-sufficiency. He felt that she had won out. When they reached her own door, he took her hand in a sympathetic pressure for a moment, but spoke no words. Thanking him in low, quick sentences, Verona knocked at her door, and he hastened away before it was opened. Chapter 9 Verona stayed away from the store for several days and made a hard fight against a threatening fever. She had gone down as usual the day after her experience with Ike, but on the second day was unable to leave her bed. Her mother, badly frightened, hovered about her day and night, the incarnation of maternal devotion. Ike Hammerstein failed to call, and Mrs. Oblinsky wondered. Anton, who in an accidental meeting with Eva Poniatowski, learned of Verona's illness, called once and inquired after her. But Ike's continued absence nettled Mrs. Oblinsky. When Verona had sufficiently recovered, she relieved her mind by asking about it. Mother, came the answer, Ike and I quarreled, and he ain't coming here again. Quarreled? Quarreled, shouted the mother. And for what did you quarrel with Ike Hammerstein? Oh, never mind. We will never speak to each other again. And besides, I don't want you to mention him to me. I hate Ike Hammerstein. Don't you fret me about him again. I hate him, I tell you. And Verona flushed 
and stamped her foot savagely while the astonished mother gazed at her with open mouth finally the force of her daughter's words struck into her brain and her anger rose and overflowed in a torrent of abusive language you hate him you hate him ah i show you how to hate him you young devil i fix you what you go with i kammerstein what you make me buy you fine clothes you hate him because he been rich man because he been decent man you not know what is for decency i show you hate somebody she launched a tightened fist at verona's face which the latter evaded with a quick movement then followed a series of gyrations about the room which lasted until mrs oblinsky was forced to stop for breath a violent coughing fit prevented further argument and verona sank wearily onto a chair conveniently near the outward door the woman's heart was broken all her dreams all her delightful castles in the air had come to naught were to topple down and light as they were seemed already crushing her body and soul she was crushed but not subdued between paroxysms of coughing she continued to berate her daughter verona weak from her late illness and overcome with fear and astonishment said nothing at which her mother's anger waxed higher and higher she made no attempt to strike her again but verona became frightened she had never seen her mother like that before she had witnessed her in many an ill temper and knew that she was sharp-tongued but never had she given herself with such abandoned anger as now her face was ugly with the scowl of it her skin looked drawn and hard and yellow her coughing brought a dark brick-red flush to her face and her hair dishevelled and dark gave her a look that verona hated to remember in after days however it never occurred to her to tell her mother the cause of the trouble with ike she felt that it was enough that she hated him that they had quarrelled she recoiled at having herself connected even in her mother's thought with an insult such as she had received from young hammerstein she felt in her soul that she would in some way be blamed for the thing happening she knew her innocence but her woman's instinct told her that in some way the world would hold her responsible and that it never would forget she had heard of girls going wrong she knew the terrible stigma that clung to them people always spoke of them in whispers and pointed the finger of scorn at them no one ever intimated that they might not have been to blame and therefore were all the more to be pitied the world did not seem to care for that part it simply held the fact of the misfortune against them and she herself had condemned them what little she knew of them but not now she would never condemn such a girl again until she heard every fragment of evidence for the case it was a hard world for women a bitter dreary world no she would not even whisper her trouble to her mother after a spell of coughing mrs oblinsky sank in a sort of stupor her chin fell upon her breast and she closed her eyes a great wave of pity swept over verona for her suddenly however she started up her eyes flashing fire verona shrank from her i know i know why you not let ike hammerstein come back dat anton he come between now i know you have been two devils you and dat anton ask you now get out of dis house i tell you not come back here no more i know now what make you sick i know dat anton he been too interested i know mother verona's eyes were flashing fire too now her whole body was on fire and mrs oblinsky seeing it checked her bitter accusations mother don't you open your mouth to me again i will do just as you ask i will go away just give me time to get my things together 
and I will go, and never come back again. I think you are crazy. Crazy? Crazy? Who have been crazy but you? You have good chance to marry. You have one gentleman with plenty money, and you say to him, No, I will not take you. I will take Anton, that beggar, Anton. But Verona had already gone into another room and slammed the door behind her. She was furiously gathering her few clothes together and folding them in a telescope valise the new waist of which she had been so proud the night she went out with Ike. She left untouched. It was hateful to her now. She could hardly bear her mother's accusations, and wanted more intensely than anything else to get out of the house and away from the side of her. She was weak and trembling, but her anger strengthened her, and she soon had her things ready for a journey. She had been saving a little money for personal use, all of which amounted to three dollars and twenty cents. Taking this, she slipped out of the front door, leaving Mrs. Oblinsky in the rear, with never a word of regret nor a good-bye. Verona took the car at the usual place, and rode as usual toward the business district. She had an idea of what she would do, and worked it out in her mind as she sat in the car. She had once visited some friends on the north side, and knew of a district of cheap rooming-houses up there. It was her intention to secure one of these rooms at a dollar and a half or two dollars a week, and get her meals when and as she could. The first thing was to find the room. It was Sunday afternoon, and she hoped to get settled in order to go to work the next morning. Though she was not yet strong, it was imperative that she work now, and she shuddered to think what might happen should she become ill again. Whatever might happen, however, she was determined not to let her mother or any of her friends know of her condition, nor where she was. Her humor made her decidedly individualistic in thought. She reckoned her personal powers to be sufficient for all her needs. To be continued. End of section 24